Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, welcome back to Dr. Giles Yo Choose the Fat. I'm Giles, and I'm a geneticist at the University of Cambridge. Most of the time, you can find me moving minuscule volumes of colorless liquids from one tube to another. But I'm taking off my lab coat for a bit to make some new discoveries on this podcast. We like to reduce food and health to bite-sized nuggets of information like BMI or the number of calories on the back of a packet of biscuits. But there's so much more to health, to life, than simple numbers. Each week, I'll be exploring various relationships our bodies have with food and exploding some myths around diets. Can what we eat have a direct effect on our mental health? And should we be fueling differently for different types of physical exercise? This week, I'm joined by scientist, writer and broadcaster Adam Rutherford to talk about our mutual specialist subject, genes. Everyone can digest lactose in breast milk when they're born but by the time you're about four or five in most people throughout most of history that gene becomes inactive and the process stops and you can't drink milk after that without suffering tummy troubles. Adam is an honorary fellow at University College London. He teaches the history of eugenics, race science and genetics. So why have I invited him onto a podcast about foodie stuff then? Well, I know that all the genes that interact with the food we put in our bodies have evolved over thousands of years, and how well your body handles certain nutrients is largely due to where in the world your ancestors were living and what foods they had access to. Our collective history is affecting you when you sit down to peruse a restaurant menu. Now, the whole point of this podcast is to finally give space to messy, nuanced concepts that we often try to put into neat boxes to make our lives easier. That's just about where Adam started when I asked him what a gene actually is. Look, we're both academics, so I'm afraid we went quite deep quite quickly. Oh, and just to warn you, there's some fruity language in this chat that might not be suitable for younger ears. The question we shouldn't be asking is, what is a thing? The question we should be asking is, what does this thing do? right? You know, we can define a gene. It's a unit of inheritance. 
that is transmitted via the processes of of meiosis from cell to cell, from generation to generation, and that, that contains information which translates into a functional thing in the body, right? You know, some, something like that. That would probably... Something get, like that. You get, something that would get me like six... You, you, get, you, you, you may get a 2-1 out of that. <laughs> I got a 2-1, so I'm happy with that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was going to say that would get me about like 6 out of 10 at GCSE Biology. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, the history of the word itself is really interesting. So, so we, we only really have genes in the 20th century. Genetics is a, is a word that is coined only, I think, in 1907. And at that time, we have almost no knowledge of molecular biology. We don't really have a mechanism by which the information is transmitted from generation to generation. And then that, that all changes over the course of the, of the 20th century. But then by the time we get into the 70s and 80s and 90s and the Human Genome Project, and then we realise that genes are all sorts of different things and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, this is what biology is. It's a, we're, we're messy things. So, but the interesting thing about uh, being, a, I am a geneticist. So are you, for for that matter. And we're talking about genes leaping forward. Actually, till till now, is many people, a lot of people actually, um, think that genetics is deterministic, and now which is always an, an interesting point. And and I only say this because when people, I say I'm a geneticist, and people go, oh yes, that's very clever of you, yeah. But when I say that I study, because geneticists study a lot of geneticists study traits, I study a trait, and I say body weight, obesity sits on one end clearly of the spectrum. Immediately, I become the bad person because today, point, people point at me. I've been at dinners, you, you know, where hirsute men, they're mostly hirsute men, point, point at me and say, do you know what your problem is? I'm saying, I'm trying to have dinner. I'm trying to have dinner. That's my problem. You give fat people an excuse. Wow. And, and it's been said to me m- multiple times. So this is always an interesting thing where the, it's only done with certain things. Because if I was studying the genetics of, uh, I don't know, cancer or dementia or arthritis, no one would ever actually point that at me, right? To say that, oh, you're giving people with arthritis an excuse. No. (laughs) But but yet when we talk about food, which ultimately, obviously, we have to eat in order to uh, adjust body weight and gain, it's suddenly a choice. So I guess, Mike, we are going deep pretty quickly, but since we're here, uh, in terms of choice and genes, and and, I mean, we can talk about food, obviously, choice and genes and food. How, How do you square your head? Because people are saying, well... When I say that body weight is not a choice, okay, how deterministic am I being? Uh, uh, you know, when it comes when it comes to genes. Yeah, well, I mean, this, you're absolutely right, and I've I've never experienced that because I don't work on food, um, and that's that's horrible. But we have this history and this trajectory of genetics, which points in the direction that you alluded to, right? Which is that there are genes and that they are deterministic. That if you have the gene for whatever, blue eyes, then you will have blue eyes, right? And we know that there's a gene which if you have one variant of, you, um, uh, if you have two, two copies of one version of it, you will have blue eyes. If you have two copies or one copy of the other version of it, you'll have brown eyes, right? Okay. And so by the time we get to the Human Genome Project in the 90s and into the 2000s, we're less interested in simple traits that may be heavily influenced by a single gene, such as eye colour, or the first disease genes that were identified in the 80s, such as cystic fibrosis and Huntington's and Duchenne, because they are mostly explained by a mutation in one particular gene. By the time we get to the 2000s and we begin unpicking the genetics of complex traits and complex disorders and complex diseases, you know, cancers or mental health diseases or food, diet and obesity, you're entering a world where 
There are literally hundreds, if not thousands, of genes involved, mostly in small incremental ways that nudge people in particular directions, and they're all probabilistic, right? And so, you know, your guy saying you give people an excuse to be overweight, that is tapping in. I mean, apart from the fact that it's really rude. Over dinner, um, please. How uncivilized. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Quite. <laughs> but it's it's sort of understandable because the entire trajectory of our field has pointed in that one direction. But what is interesting is that some of these single genes, um, um, which are, you know, which encode a, for a specific behavior, and even then... And this is me speaking as a geneticist. I have just learned new things about. So where we, I think the last time we spoke, I'm just trying to think back. We were making pizza together over Zoom because that's because that's what we do. We 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 make. We, we, we it was it what was uh, this was for, for for your program. Remind me of the question. Why were we making pizza? Oh, uh, it was so. It's for Curious Cases, the Curious Case of Rutherford and Fry, which is a program I do with Hannah Fry on Radio Four. And um, now the question was: Would it be possible to make a single dish that would satisfy your entire nutritional requirements. Um, we failed within two seconds. We said, no, it's not possible. But I only, <laughs> I only bring this up. It, there, there, there is a relevance here. And obviously, then we had cheese on the pizza. I had mozzarella. I put uh, those buffalo mozzarella pieces, which I, which I love. But I am lactose intolerant. Okay, now I only found this out because I took one of these silly... Okay, now let me stop. I took one of these personalized genetic tests. I think I was paid by a newspaper, which shan't be named, to write a review on it, okay? And I thought it was all going to be a whole lot of tosh. Most of it uh, um, was, of course, except it said I was lactose intolerant. And I said, I'm not lactose intolerant um, because I thought if I was lactose intolerant, then it would be severe intestinal distress every time I looked at a Pizza Hut commercial. This is, this is what I thought. But then as it turns out, I am, because then I realized that there were certain <clears throat> phenotypes, which I had when I drank my morning poison, which was a cappuccino. And I said, oh, so I removed the milk from the cappuccino process, black coffee, and certain phenotypes disappeared. And I said, shut the and so, so I then did the crossover control. <laughs> I reintroduced said milk and <clears throat> certain things came back on. So then it got me thinking, well, hang on a second. How can I be lactose intolerant? And I call my mom and she has the same thing. But my dad can't look at a Pizza Hut commercial because he does run screaming to the loo. So the, 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 the question, so even for something like lactase persistence, which I then thought was single gene, you either had the ability to digest lactose as an adult or not. There is a huge range of behaviors of, of being able to... So I can't, clearly can't drink milk, but I can eat mozzarella. I didn't go... I just, just for, for... I didn't run screaming to the loo after I finished the pizza, for example. But that's, but that's because the lactase in, in the fermentation process when you're making cheese is broken down into, I think, galactase and something else. So... Oh, glucose. Glucose and galactose. Yeah. So, so there isn't any lactase in, in, in cheese. Mm. And the reason I bring this up is because... One of the outstanding questions in the emergence of agriculture, and, and this relates very specifically to lactase persistence and lactase intolerance, is when we started dairy farming, right? When, when, when humanity started taking milk from other animals, probably goat, we think it was probably goats first. So, so there's a question of, were we, were we drinking milk from these animals or were we doing other things with them? And which came first? Because what you see in the genome is very, very clear evidence that as soon as lactase persistence emerged, it spread very quickly through populations. So just to explain, 
lactase persistence. Everyone can digest lactose in breast milk when they're born. We're mammals after all. Exactly. Sort of definitionally. Mm -hmm. But by the time you're about four or five, in most people throughout most of history, that gene becomes inactive and the process stops and you can't drink milk after that without suffering what you've just described tummy troubles which are which are sort of mild to serious i i, I guess but but sort of not life-threatening i can i can attest to that i'm still here <laughs> good evidence for it having spent a, an adult life drinking i know eating cereal what the hell was that anyway <laughs> so um this this question was answered about uh, about five years ago by, by by colleagues of mine at UCL. So we knew that we we had milk fats and proteins in pottery ware from places like, from dig sites in places like Turkey, um, because you can you, we, we found we found bits of pottery and stoneware that have the traces of of milk fats on them, that, and we think they're things like colanders. So we were definitely processing milk at I this see stage. to 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 uh, to strain the curds uh, away from the whey is that the right order that's that's I, the right that's the... I think so little miss muffet yeah yeah i think i think i think that's right and so you know some some of the ideas about the origin of cheese which is a sentence that i love saying because we've been eating cheese now for like 8000 years it's the first processed food it's it's such a rich source of of proteins and fat and and it stores right you know, it's, it's, it doesn't go off. And in fact, many cheeses go much better when they the, the older they are. So we've been cheese makers or humanity has been cheese makers for like seven or 8,000 years. But the question was, when did we start? Did, did we drink milk before we were cheese makers or, or after? And it looks like it was after. So we were already eating cheese, probably soft cheeses. And one theory is it might be putting some milk in maybe a, a calfskin pouch or cantina and that that it goes off or you know it turns over a couple of days and then somebody ate that and and all of a sudden i mean that is basically what mozzarella is and cottage cheese and things like that that pretty much what it is it's yeah, uh, yeah, yeah exactly it's off milk well that's what cheese is it's just it's just flavored off milk but yeah so we can actually tell that we were eating cheeses before we were drinking milk but the, the mutation in the lactase gene that keeps that enzyme working past weaning that mutation occurred somewhere in Europe, some, something like seven or eight thousand years ago, and then very, very rapidly spread amongst all the dairy farming populations. And lactase persistence today is almost universal in people of European descent, but it's also it also exists in different forms in almost every population whose ancestors were pastoralists. So that includes Middle Eastern camel herders goat herders in in places like Nepal, lots of African pastoralists, in, in, including the the Tutsi in what is now Rwanda and and all over the place. The reason I mentioned these the, the diversity of the people who have lactase persistence is because a couple of years ago, white supremacists, neo-Nazis in America, started putting milk glasses on their Twitter profiles. I was going to ask you exactly this question, actually. So, so you got there. So, t- t- tell us the story. Yeah, why, why, yeah. why milk and white supremacy? Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? That's it's the scene that aside from the fact that milk's white. It's, I don't even think it's <laughs> that. I mean, these these arguments are are not well thought out, but somehow they got it through their heads that because the the gene for lactase persistence, it's act, it's actually a, it's not actually in the gene itself. It's a promoter region. Uh, which which is a bit of DNA which turns the gene on or turns it off or turns it up or t- turns it down. Because that reached reach fixation in European populations, 
and started in Northern Europe, we think, from the best of evidence, and basically means that almost all people descended from white European populations are lactase persistence, that somehow that therefore demonstrated their both white purity and supremacy. (laughs) Oh, God. And you just think, well, A, no, that's not how any of the words you just said work. And B, also the Tutsi and members of the of the Khoisan and Middle Eastern cow herders and basically anyone who was a pastoralist and their their ancestors were pastoralists has has the same version. But but I guess this then just reflects the entire complexity of it. And and I the other reason to bring up this genetic test, which which I, which are popular, I won't name any of the companies, but many exist and many claim to be able to predict all manner of things from what percentage Viking you are to whether or not you can drink whatever it is or eat whatever it is or your detoxing ability, okay? I was all prepared to poo-poo the entire thing, but I had to say that, well, a couple of things were accurate. Uh, My ability or inability to digest lactose, my ability to handle alcohol, because as it turns out, I'm heterozygous around the region, so I only have half the copies around the region for dealing with alcohol compared to most white folks, for example. So that was accurate. And they're sprinkled with these gems of accuracy but people go yeah yeah that's true and then a whole sea of entire it was bollocks in terms of certainly in prediction not in terms of the actual genetic yeah. uh, um, um sequence that is there that's going to be accurate but their interpretation of it so i guess and, and a big problem which i had was because they mix these single gene disorders with complex traits and if most of us are not geneticists I don't know if they do it on purpose or not, but clearly because they mix these traits together, people are going to go, oh, I am lactose intolerant. Oh my God, this 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 test is so accurate. Uh, I, I have to go eat more celery. What is your view? This is my, my question. Your view broadly on genetic tests about what they can actually tell you, leaving aside things like lactose. Is there any, so there's a three-part question. I apologize for a three-part question. I'm an, I'm an academic. So, so what, what, what are your thoughts with it? Okay. The, the, the second is, is there any harm to knowing the stuff? In fact, those are the two. Those are the two questions. Well, the first thing is, it's not our job to tell people how to spend their money. It's our job to educate people as to what they're spending their money on, and they appeal to a very basic sense of wanting to know stuff about yourself that was previously hidden, and the authority of science, and also the thing we were talking about at the beginning, which was the sort of dominance of the idea of the gene and the deterministic nature of the gene. For the most part, I think the information you get from those sorts of tests is of trivial interest. You've got to remember as well that mostly these tests are comparing you against a population, right? So we understand that these variants and various genes uh, exist because of a particular type of experiments that genetics have been doing for about 15 years now, which is called genome-wide association studies. And those studies only really explain things at a population level and don't explain things for individuals, right? So you can have the variant for a particular gene, you know, alcohol that you mentioned, uh, which is alcohol dehydrogenase for caffeine processing, for coriander. Is it coriander? They call it cilantro, don't they? Yeah, cilantro. Same, same thing. Yep. Same thing. Right. Right. The soapy, the soapy taste. Whether or not you make, whether or not you make the the, the the funky smell when you eat asparagus, or can you smell it? I forgot which is genetic and which is not. Anyway, uh, they both are. It's two separate so, oh, separate roles. And, okay. I, and okay. my God, I've got both of them. Um, yeah. So do I. <laughs> I love asparagus too, which is an issue. I've, I've even timed it. Like, you know, drank a pint of water. Um, I was just really interested how quickly it happened, how quickly it gets metabolised. Drank a pint of water, ate some asparagus, 
and I went for a pee after about 16 minutes and it was just, it was there. <laughs> there's definitely, there's harm in that it's miseducation about genetics, right? It's giving people newfound access to previously secret knowledge, but is somewhat misinforming or, or leading them in a direction that we don't think is correct, which is genetic determinism. If you have the gene for X, then you will have X. Now, we just know that's not true. And, and, and secondly, we know that it's not necessarily information that you can do anything with, right? Because these tests aren't allowed to be clinically relevant. They're very explicit about having lots of caveats that say, you know, we can't tell you if you've, if, if you've got the gene for... This is not a diagnosis. It, I, the, the, my thing exactly. says, this is not a diagnosis, but then proceed to give me a diagnosis. Yeah. But anyway, we'll leave that alone. <laughs> and I, I think some of these companies, it's pretty good to me as a geneticist, reading the small print and really understanding what it is that they're actually telling you. So when it comes to eye colour, for example, it says you have a 69% chance of having brown eyes. And I'm like, cool, cool, cool. Glad I spent 200 pounds on that because I've known that. Since the day I was born. But via mirror. the technology of, of mirrors. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. But, 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 you know, what's cool about that actually is that it says you have a 69% chance or, or people with your genes, with the, those variants, have 69% uh, of the time have brown eyes, right? And I thought, well, that's interesting, right? Because it means that 31% of the time they don't have brown eyes. You've got to be a bolder betting man than I am to have confidence in how you get from what the gene looks like to what the characteristic looks like with any form of confidence. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I, I wanted to talk to you about this whole paleo diet business, okay? And in which people saying that we haven't yet adapted because, because agriculture has only been around for 10, 12,000 years, however many years, that human beings around haven't genetically adapted to eat agricultural foods. So we have to become a caveman again. We have to be Freddie Flintstone um, um, in order to eat food that was 12,000 years, that, that was before agriculture because that's what we're adapted to actually eat. But obviously what you've just 
first of all, eloquently said is, well, for one thing, we've now adapted to be able to, some of us have now adapted to be able to handle milk in, in, in large amounts in a period of time of whatever, 7,000, 7,500 years. So the whole paleo thing about, well, aside from the fact that there is not one single paleolithic person and there was, there was a gazillion time. But anyway, I, did you have any thoughts about the, about the paleo thing or did you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wrote about it in A Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived, which is my book about ancient DNA. It's bollocks. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, an, it's a nonsense <laughs> built on many other nonsenses. Um, so as you just said, the first thing is, well, who in the paleolithic? <laughs> Because the right. Inuit, I mean, I mean, who, who exactly, yeah. exactly. Because one of the things we know really well, I mean, the first thing to say is the amount of genes in our bodies that are actually naturally selected and positively adapted to specific things is low, right? Most of our genome is just doing stuff that's ticking along. Most of it is drift. It's just drifted into being things that have actually been selected for we are very good at spotting them in genomes now and they tend to fall into a few categories one of them is disease resistance dealing with pathogens is probably the probably the biggest selective factor in the history of of humankind and the second biggest one is diet right so we locally adapt to diets really quickly and that has happened in the last 10,000 years in the last 50,000 years as we've been migrating away from, as people have been migrating away from Africa, our African origins. But we know very well that, as you say, Inuit people have multiple versions of genes that are particularly well suited to oily fish diets because that's what they have been eating for a long time. Those sorts of variations occur all over the world in different populations. And as the world has become you know, smaller and more mixed, they have spread, but we can still trace them and they still exist at high frequency in specific populations. So who are we talking about? When you say you've got to eat a Paleolithic diet, are you talking about hunter-gatherers from you know, sub-Saharan Africa? Or are you talking about people, early pastoralists in the, in the Fertile Crescent as they moved towards, you know, west towards Europe and began populating Europe and then Britain, or you're talking about indigenous people from, you know, the first nations of the Americas, you know, blah, 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 blah. So, I mean, that's the first stage of why it's bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> let, let, let alone most of the foods have been so domesticated, they're not the same foods anyway from 10,000 years ago anyway well of course of course i mean we see we even know things from our genomes about when we started eating carbohydrates in greater levels and when different populations because there's things like multiplications of the number of genes associated with things like amylase so salivary amylase is the first digestive process other than chewing is that right it is correct correct yep salivary amylase amy one yep the gene. and we know when that emerged and when it started duplicating, right? So if you're eating a lot of high carbohydrate diet, like roots and tubers, then that became selected. So we had so various populations, but humans in general have many more amylase genes than our nearest cousins, you know, that don't eat such carbohydrate rich food. So I think one of the, 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 I'm saying this because I think one of the things in the paleo diet, or at least it was a few years ago, was we have to eat meat, just eat meat because we're hunt, hunter gatherers and we just eat meat and we don't eat enough meat, but also eat some berries, meat and berries, meat and berries. Um, well, that's just, you know, it, it betrays a complete lack of understanding of anthropology, of paleoanthropology, of human evolution, of human genetics. We are evolved to eat what is available to us. And for almost the entirety of human history, there was not enough food. 
right? The, the reason society emerges from agriculture is largely to do with our ability to store food. But, you know, we're generalists. We eat everything. We are. We're like cockroaches. That's, 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 that's the thing. <laughs> with a, with we're the, large uh, uh, vertebrate cockroaches. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> you, you can have that analogy. I, I might not use that one. Okay, can I just interject it very, very quickly to contrast that? Okay, because, because you say we, we adapt and we say, but yet, and, and this is the thing which people then throw at me as well. And, and I say that, look, I study obesity. Okay, the obesity problem. And one of the big issues with, with why obesity has suddenly increased so, so quickly is, first of all, the environment has changed and our susceptible genes that, that are suddenly exposed and so we, we, we gain weight, is that we, because it's happened in our lifetime, we haven't had the chance to genetically adapt to, to, to this change of the diet. And so there is almost this, well, I understand it in my head, okay, and I don't consider it a, uh, uh, you know, a conflict. But people are saying, you see, you're saying, first of all, that we had time to adapt. And now you're saying we don't have time to adapt. Make up your mind. It's, it's, it's just, but we haven't had a time to adapt because the, the change in our, in our food environment, acute change, has happened within our lifetime. Yeah, it has. And that's, that's un, undeniably true. And But it's a slightly different argument. So when you're presented, I, I think I've, I've heard that argument too. And I think when you get presented with that argument, I think it stops really becoming an, an argument about genetics. And it starts becoming an argument about what we're eating and, and how that food is created. So, I mean, this is your domain. So I, I, I would be reluctant to start talking to you about it. Is it food abundance is a big part of it? And particularly certain sugars? We know how all diets work, don't we? They, which is well, the first answer is they don't really work because they certainly don't work in the in the long term. But mostly they work because it makes people more conscious of the food they're eating, and so they eat less. That's right. Is that right? That's correct. So you got to eat less to 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 lose weight. That's that's no mystery there. But how, why, who, and how long it lasts? That is the the difficulty, and and the fact that it doesn't last very long because people says my diet hasn't worked. The diet hasn't worked because you've no longer on the diet. That, that's why the diet doesn't work. But you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. So now the, 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 the thing when we deal with genes and we deal with something like feeding behavior and food and, and propensity for obesity is people always say, well, can you change your genes? I'm going, well, <laughs> it depends, depends how. So I think there's two questions for you. Can you change your genes? Um, and I'll know the answer to your question. But can you, through the change of your environment, because we know that different cultures, you have different responses to things, through the environment, influence how your genes actually work? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a good question. And it's, I get asked this a lot as well. And the answer is, of course, complex, right? I mean, you can't change your genes because you probably don't want to. Changing your genes generally results in things like cancers. The code that you're born with is the code that you run off for, for your life. But genes don't live independently of the rest of the universe, right? They, they are active things inside a cell, inside the organ, inside the body, the body which ex exists in the world. And so one of those sort of cultural things, a sort of meme that people have attached uh, a lot of significance to is the whole idea of nature versus nurture, and which is a terrible way of describing how how genes, which is the nature bit, the innate bit, and nurture, which is... Interacts with the nurture. Yeah. It, it's literally everything else in the world, right? And nature via nurture, we think, is a better phrase, maybe, sometimes. But, but the, you know, it's a dynamic process. And the way that the universe interacts with our genes happens in multiple different ways, at different stages in your life, different times. And everything you do 
turns genes on and off. So yeah, when you eat, your genes some 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 genes are becoming active when you're processing different foods or when you're doing exercise. Different genes are, uh, are on or off or upregulated or downregulated or or whatever. So yes, you can influence what genes are being switched on and off, but in a very sort of limited. And, and I think not very important way. I, uh, well, I don't know. What do you think about that? How, how would you describe... You know what I'm getting at, right? I do, I do know what you're getting at. So, so we're talking here about various epigenetic changes. I think there probably are biologically relevant changes that do happen. I think the, the, it's sometimes and very often overstated. This, this, this is the thing. However, I think with regards to feeding behavior and food, because epigenetics, these changes, are two things. They're relatively volatile, so they change. By its very definition, they're environmentally responsive. But they're organ-specific. And one of the things we know is about the genetics of, of body weight is that it's controlled by the brain. It's largely controlled by the brain. And we have an issue, legally, ethically, philosophically, of getting into the brain of living human beings. So therefore, actually, our knowledge anyway about whether or not we can change the genes that matter are, are the ones that actually operate within the brain. We really have no idea how, what big an effect. It, it will happen, undoubtedly, but what the size of the effect, how relevant will the change be? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. See, the thing is that I think, you know, people often turn to science and politicians often turn to science for a quick answer and a definitive answer. And so, you, you know, doing those commercial tests, which tell you, you have this, that, and X, Y, and Z genes, and therefore you should do this, that, and the other and for your exercise or, or what you eat. Well, I mean, it's a weird thing being a geneticist and spending quite a lot of your professional career downplaying the significance of, of genes in, in human life. Yes, <laughs> correct. But, but that's, but you know, you know, it's, and, and it's really tedious to have to say it, but, but I, I think, I think the best evidence is eat three meals a day, a balanced diet with as many vegetables as possible, keep it varied and, um, and, and do as much exercise as you can. That's basically it, isn't it? That is it. That is it. That is it. That's the we'll call it the Rutherford uh, uh, life <laughs> uh, coaching session. No, but it's true. It's absolutely true. But do you know what the problem with that is, Adam? What? It's boring. Yeah, it's but bo- it's not going to get me out of the ghetto here in Cambridge. I don't live in a ghetto, but 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 <laughs> uh, but you know, if I did live in a ghetto, that's not going to get me out of it. Yeah, I suppose so. And you know, and, and we fetishize some foods as well. And people talk about processed foods as being evil, um, when in fact, of course, cheese is a processed food. And you know, fast food is 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 fine in moderation as well. I mean, if you only eat McDonald's, that's going to be bad for you. But that's no different from saying if you only eat celery, that's also bad for you. So look, we're emerging, emerging or have emerged from lockdown. Stuff is going back to inverted commas normal. How has your eating and cooking been for you and your family been over the lockdown period? It changed radically. And in a really super positive way, because we, we had, a I mean, apart from getting COVID and almost dying, we had a really sort of positive lockdown in the sense that the family works really well together. And I almost missed the kids when they went back to school. Almost, you know, it obviously, <laughs> you know, not totally, but but because we, we, we basically were sitting down to two meals every day and I was doing a lot of the cooking. So I wasn't working at all for the first few months when I was sort of recovering. And so I was doing a lot of cooking every day and we would have sit down meals and we, and we began to be really creative, so bought new cookbooks. My daughter's really interested in Korean food at the moment. So we started cooking a lot of Korean food and she's doing it with me. So w- the downside to that was 
that we were eating two meals a day, two large meals a day. And I put I put on, put on more weight, which is fine. I'm, I'm okay with that. <laughs> the next thing that happened is I decided to experiment with fasting. Okay. Intermittent fasting? Yeah. Yeah. So d- daily. And I, and I looked into it and I started doing it. And I did it for a couple of months. And I did lose some weight, but it didn't really work for me. And I don't, I'm, I have questions about the science behind it. And then the next stage was... Uh, because I, I'm sort of long COVID as well, so I'm 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 less fit than I've been for years. Age forty six, um, I I got a personal trainer, right? And now I work out three times a week, seven thirty in the morning. And the only way you can do that is if you eat three square meals a day. That's the problem with exercise; it makes you feel hungry. So I'm not actually losing weight now, but I feel stronger, right? And I feel feel healthier, and I've sort of settled at I'm I'm like eighty seven kilograms now. Adam, it has been a pleasure to speak to you. Always good to talk to you, Giles. As I'm sure you could tell, we could have gone on chatting for hours. So if you're keen to soak up even more of Adam's knowledge, he's written a fair few books. A Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived covers more of the stuff we went over today. If you want more of the foodie side of things, I've written a book too. We're all at it. It's called Why Calories Don't Count. And it's available to buy now as a hard copy or audiobook. You can find links in the show notes. I'd love it if as well as subscribing to the podcast so you don't miss an episode, you'd rate and review it too. Next week's a good one. I'll be chewing the fat with Dr. Rupi Ojla. Within Ayurveda, the gut is central to everything. And it seems that as this plays out, that with more research looking at the microbiota, the population of microbes that live in and around our body, largely in our gut, it seems that there's a lot of truths coming out and the need for pickles and fermented foods and, and something that exists in every single culture. It seems a bit strange that we're, we've got all these different things and it's been promoted before and we've kind of lost our way and now we're coming back to, ah, oh, maybe there is something in it. For now, thanks again to Adam Rutherford and to my producer Anushka Tate for Orion Publishing Limited. And of course, thank you to you for being here. I'll see you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.